Does our worship really matter to God? It may kind of seem strange for us to ask that kind of question in church, but it's a question that we should seriously consider. Last week, one of the main issues for consideration from Psalm 46 was that the Lord desires to be glorified, not only in our narrow neck of the woods on planet Earth, but rather he desires to be glorified among all peoples, among all nations. Remember what it means for God to be glorified. To get the sense of what it means, I've often used the illustration of one of those jumbo television screens in those, those, those sporting um, stadiums. They use those jumbo television screens to help to magnify the field, especially for those who are sitting in the nosebleeds. You know, you can't afford the $1,000 ticket, so, you know, you pay the 10 bucks and you sit like, you know, 20,000 feet in the air. Um, But they have those massive jumbotron kind of screens so that the field looks a little bit closer and you can actually see the people who are engaged in the sporting event. For God to be glorified, it means that he is magnified. His person, his character, his goodness, all of his attributes are magnified. They're made big for others to see. God desires to be magnified among the nations of the earth. If the Lord thus thus desires to be magnified throughout all the earth, certainly he desires to be magnified, to be glorified, to be honored among his people. He wants for his people to know him, to see him clearly, to magnify his goodness as we gather together, as we worship. That's really what worship is, right? Worship, it's to ascribe worth or value. It's to say about God that, yes, we know who he is, and yes, we know that he is worthy of our praise and honor. So I'll ask again, does it really matter to God how we worship? Any true believer must confess that, yes, it does matter to him. It matters to him because in our worship, again, we ascribe value to him. It matters to him because in our worship, we ascribe value to him, and therefore we magnify him, which we know is his desire throughout all the earth. In our psalm for this morning, Psalm 50, we are made known in no uncertain terms that our worship matters to God. The people in Asaph's day had their worship evaluated by the Lord and they came up wanting. As we will see, what they struggled with in their day is not so different from what we struggle with in our day. Nevertheless, the message of this psalm is necessary for us to consider. The Lord in judgment calls his people to repent of false worship both for their collective good and for his glory to be magnified among them. Let's take a look at Psalm 50. I'll read it together, read it before you. Then we'll pray and we'll look at it more in detail. Psalm 50. The mighty one. Excuse me. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. 
the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like you. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Father, we thank you for this day once again, and we thank you for your word, which Jesus says sanctifies us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would indeed be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are two main points in this text, and we'll get A little more detailed as we go through, but there are two main points that I want you to see in verses 1 through 6. We see that the Lord expects faithful worship from his people. The Lord expects faithful worship from his people. And in 7 through 23, we see that the Lord examines the faulty worship of his people. He expects faithful worship and he examines the faulty worship of his people. Let's look at the first point. The Lord expects faithful worship from his people. Take a look again at verses 1 through 6. The mighty one God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. The Lord expects worship, faithful worship from his people because he is God and thus worthy of worship. Again, that's in verse 1. He is called the mighty one. In the original, the term is simply the word for God or El. However, it's generally understood that this is more of a universal term for God. Therefore, the connotation is a reference to the great deity who all people would recognize as God. Thus, it is translated in our text, the mighty one. 
the mighty one, God, the Lord. There are just multiple names for God, different names for God, just put right out in front here. He is God, the Lord. The phrase God, the Lord translates another term for God, Elohim, which is the plural of El and typically used to describe the majesty of God. We use the term the majestic plural with reference to royalty. In other words, the queen or now the king of England may refer to themselves as we, at which point they would say something like we will go to the meeting or we will stand at parliament today. It's a plural of majesty, referring to oneself in the plural in order to communicate a sense of grandeur, of glory, of greatness. Elohim has that same function with reference to God. It speaks of his majesty, his greatness. And of course, the term Lord, the name Lord, is his memorial name given through Moses to the sons of Israel. The Lord is the preexistent, self-existent creator of all things. That's who he revealed himself to be. He is the redeemer of Israel. In other words, this God, the true and living God, the mighty one, God, the Lord, is the one who is speaking in this text. He speaks and summons the earth from the rising of its sun to its setting. Now, you don't use the term summon unless you have authority, right? We understand what that means. We are at times summoned to serve jury duty or summoned to stand before a judge for a particular proceeding. We understand that the one doing the summoning has authority over the one summoned or else it wouldn't matter, right? It would make no difference. I can summon the president of the United States to Catonsville, but he'll probably just laugh at me if he even hears about it. (laughs) To the contrary, if a governing official, one who rightly has jurisdiction over this territory or the president of the United States were to lawfully summon me, I would have to go or face some consequences. In this case, it is the mighty one, God, the Lord, who summons the earth. In fact, in verse 4, it says he calls to the heavens above and to the earth. Now, the Psalms are Hebrew poetry. We've talked about that before. When a poetic text uses two parts of a whole, it's called a merism, and it's used to indicate the whole thing. The text refers to both the heavens above and to the earth below. And the Lord summons both the heavens and earth in the text, meaning he's summoning all of creation. There's another one of these kinds of merisms in the text. He says from the rising of the sun to its setting. And that's just another way of saying the same thing from the east to the west. We talked about that with another psalm. He's talking about all of creation. The Lord, the mighty one, is summoning all of creation before him. The Lord expects faithful worship from his people because he is God and thus worthy of worship. We see that he is God by these terms, these grand, glorious terms that are used to refer to him by his power, even to summon all of creation before him. He also expects faithful worship from his people because he is particularly the God of Israel. Look at verses two and three. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence before him as a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He is God. He is also particularly the God of Israel. Again, in verse 1, we saw the reference to his name, the Lord. This is, again, the memorial name given to the sons of Israel through Moses. Verse 2, he's pictured as the God who comes out of Zion. I've mentioned before that Zion is a poetic name for Jerusalem. God dwells among his people. He manifests his glory among his people, particularly in Jerusalem, in Zion. Thus he arises to call all of creation, heaven and earth, that which is from the rising of the sun to its setting. 
He arises and comes forth himself out of Zion. That is his home base. That is particularly where he's manifested his glory on the earth. Zion, the perfection of beauty. It is the perfection of beauty because the Lord dwells there. And he shines forth from there in all of his glory. God has established his dwelling place among his people in Zion. That is where he desires to show the world his glory. Thus, when he arises to call upon all creation, he arises out of Zion. I've said this before, but people often ask, where is God? In their day, they would have answered, God dwells among his people here in Jerusalem. In our day, we answer that God dwells where? God dwells in the church. Not because of the physical building, but because of the spiritual building, the people of God among whom the spirit of God dwells. We read this when we studied through the book of Ephesians chapter two. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. God is building a building for himself. Jesus is the cornerstone and we are each living stones being put together in this building. It is a dwelling place of God for his spirit. And just as in the days of Israel, because God dwells among his people, he shines forth from us. He desires to be glorified in us. Chapter three, verse 21 of Ephesians to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Back to our text, God dwells there among his people and he is not silent among his people. He shines forth. Again, verse three, our God comes. He does not keep silence before him as a devouring fire around him, a mighty tempest. God dwells among his people. God speaks. He has something to say, something that the world must take note of. He comes forth in all of his glory and all of his splendor. Again, before him, a devouring fire around him, a mighty tempest. When God speaks, you cannot help but listen. He desires to be heard. He desires to be glorified. The Lord expects faithful worship from his people because he is God. He expects faithful worship from his people because he's particularly the God of Israel. He expects faithful worship from his people because he is judge. Look at verses four through six. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. The mighty one, God, the Lord, the God of Israel, the true and living God summons the heavens above and the earth below all the created order together in order to judge his people. In this way, the tool that we referenced earlier, the merism, using two parts to describe a whole, has a dual meaning. He calls together heaven and earth. And yes, that is to indicate that he's calling together all of creation. But he also calls together heaven and earth as two witnesses against his people. According to the law, it was always required that two witnesses come before any legal matter was settled. Thus, God is here calling the heavens above and the earth below forth as witnesses. 
And the picture that we're getting is that God is moving forward in a legal proceeding against his people. This is like a courtroom session that we see here. God is, God is calling to order a, a courtroom session, a legal proceeding in which he is set to judge his people for their worship, as we'll see. We see the term judge twice in these two verses. He calls the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Verse 6 the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. God is the judge. He has authority over all. He created all. He calls all of what he's created to testify to his righteousness, his authority, his goodness, his rule. Of course, he has authority because he is the author of all things. But the purpose of his words here is to indicate in no uncertain terms that he's calling his people to account. He's taking them to court. He himself is presiding as judge over the proceedings. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. They're referred to as his faithful ones, not because in this instance they were acting faithful, but rather to indicate that as it says in the last half of the verse, they are in a relationship with him by virtue of his covenant. They ought to be faithful to him because of the covenant. He brought them out of Egypt. He set them apart from all the nations to be his people. He redeemed them and gave them a covenant to mark them out as his people. They are to be considered his faithful ones, the ones who trust in him, the ones who committed to him both in ceremony as well as their conscious daily decisions. But in this case, we'll see that they're not acting faithful. Nevertheless, God does expect faithful worship from his people. Again, he is the true and living God. He is the mighty one. He is God, the Lord, the majestic God, the preexistent, self-existent God. He is worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship from his people among whom he's made his dwelling, to whom he's revealed his glory, for whom he's worked redemption. God is worthy of their faithful worship. Thus, as judge, he calls heaven and earth to stand as witness as he evaluates their worship. We are the people of God by virtue of our faith in Christ. We have been made his people by virtue of the new covenant in his blood. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He shed blood on the cross, his blood on the cross, and that blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out from the ground when he was slain, crying out in protest of the sin of his brother. The blood of Jesus who was slain on the cross speaks not for his life alone, it does speak of his righteousness, but it also speaks for the lives of all those for whom he sacrificed. It calls out to God to declare that the debt of life that is owed because of our sin, the death that we should die because of our sin is paid in full by Jesus' death on the cross. We are his new covenant people. Thus, we owe our allegiance to him. Thus, we've been set apart for his glory. Our God is a consuming fire. His consuming fire goes before him, and yet it will never truly consume us, fully consume us, because we've been made a part of his kingdom through the death of his son. There is no condemnation for us, that is true. But because we are a part of his kingdom, because we are faithful members of this new covenant, because it is true, he expects for us to offer up acceptable worship. And it is clear that he, we will have to give an account for that. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4 that all things are open and laid bare before him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 speaks of a day when Paul says that everyone's work will become manifest because it will be revealed by fire. Our work will be evaluated before the Lord. 
When we get back to our text, we see that God expects faithful worship from his people. We also see in the remainder of the psalm that God examines the faulty worship of his people. It's in verses 7 through 23. He examines the faulty worship of his people and he identifies two areas in need of repentance. The first, in verses 7 through 15, the Lord rejects formalism and calls for fellowship. He rejects formalism and calls for fellowship. And in verses 16 through 23, the Lord rejects hypocrisy and calls for humility. First, that he rejects formalism and calls for fellowship. We see in verses 7 through 15. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Well, verse 7 is a restatement of the first six verses. God is holding Israel to account for their worship. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. He is reminding them of the relationship that they have. He is God. He is God over all. He is particularly their God. And therefore, he's calling them to account. Again, verse 8, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. They are his people by virtue of the covenant sacrifices. There was a system of sacrifices, the Levitical system, that constituted their covenant relationship with God, as we alluded to earlier. God is not calling them to account because they've forgotten to do this or because they're missing out. They do gather together for worship. They are performing sacrifices. They're performing the duty. The act of worship is present. The form is present. But something is missing. Verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. They're doing the work. They're providing the sacrifices. But again, something is missing. Therefore, their work, their sacrifices are being rejected. The question is why? Now, we might look at these people and say they're being faithful. They're showing up. They're doing the work. They're performing the deed. The worship is there. But what's missing? Today, we do not offer up sacrifices because one sacrifice has been made on our behalf and has taken away our sin for all time, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But we do still gather together for worship. There are countless thousands of churches gathered, certainly more if you count house churches and places where formal larger gatherings is not permitted. The act of worship, the gathering together of God's people is happening all around the world every Sunday morning. They may have someone lead with a title of pastor. They may sing songs of worship. They may pray. They may read from a Bible. The form is present. And yet I suspect that many of those gatherings and many of those people in those contexts have worship that is not acceptable to God. But again, the question is why? Moving on, look at verses 10 through 13. 
Again, the end of verse 9, he says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for because every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in all its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Well, what's the problem? The form is present, but there's no true fellowship. They're performing the function of worship without respect to the focus of worship. They don't truly know the God who they are worshiping. God doesn't need anything from us. He makes that clear in the text. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I love that often people quote that in the context of affirming that God provides for us, but really the purpose is that we're missing the point of worship. (laughs) God owns everything. He does not need provisions from us. He does not need food from us. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in all its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The people came to worship to perform the sacrifices, but they came to worship and to perform sacrifices with the attitude of the nations around them. The people and the nations around them made sacrifices and gave offerings to their gods to appease their gods. They provided sacrifices because their gods needed the sacrifices for sustenance. They needed the sacrifices of their people to be supported by their people. They needed food to eat. They needed wine to drink. But the mighty one, God the Lord, needs no such sacrifices. In their heart of hearts, the people of God had become so influenced by the world around them that they started to think of God in a way that the world around them thought of God. And they were thinking of worship, formal worship, in the way that the nations around them were thinking of formal worship. Likewise, in our day, we become far too easily influenced by the world. The way we think of worship is influenced more by the world than it is by the person of God. In our day, we become so easily influenced by the world that we believe that we should take a marketing approach to worship. We should cater our services to the unbelieving. Talk less about sin, judgment, and death. Talk more about happy things, about your best life now. Talk more about how good a person you are deep down inside. God rejects that kind of worship. In our day, we become so easily influenced by the world that we believe we should I don't know, for example, add a little rainbow flag to our marquee to declare to the world that we affirm a morality that is explicitly rejected in Scripture. When in fact, the only affirmation the Bible gives concerning the rainbow is that God will never again judge the world by water for its sin, but in the last days he will do so by fire. God rejects that form of worship. In our day, we become so easily influenced by the world that we believe that our membership in a church is just like our membership at a local gym. We pay our dues, at least we think we should pay. We, we pay at least whatever we think we should pay at the moment. From that, we get certain benefits, and if we don't get what we expect, then we take our money and go elsewhere. There's no need for an actual commitment to others. We take our membership on our terms. Again, no need for commitment, no need to consider what others are doing or getting. It's all about us meeting our own needs when we go to fellowship, right? I believe God rejects that kind of worship. 
In our day, we become so easily influenced by the world that we believe that as long as we show up on holidays, you know how swollen the church pews are when the holidays come around, or as long as our name is on the roll, as long as we do good things in the eyes of the world, then these things will make us acceptable to God. No need to actually acknowledge who God is as a person. Just show up and do the things that good Christians do, and that'll be good enough. God rejects that kind of worship. I could go on. The point is that the kind of worship that God rejects is a worship that is devoid of truth and which thinks of God in any way other than how he's revealed himself. God rejects worship that assumes his need for us instead of our need for him. Again, in our text, God reminds them, I don't need you. You need me. The whole relationship that we have, this covenant relationship has been set up to meet a need that you have, which you cannot fulfill on your own. Therefore, your perspective ought to be one of gratitude when you come before the Lord in worship. And ultimately, the perspective of gratitude and worship is what brings glory to God the most. Look at verses 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the most high and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. To offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving is to perform your vows to the most high. Your vows, your duty, the kind of sacrifice you ought to perform that you ought to give as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. When you bring your sacrifices to me, the Lord says, in your hearts, what you should be saying is not God, you're so lucky to have me. Or rather, God, thank you for forgiving me. I am a dirty, rotten, stinking, wretched sinner. And I deserve nothing but your judgment. But God, you have forgiven me. This is the kind of relationship we have with him. He has forgiven us much. He has given us much as a part of the new covenant that he's established with us. Every act of worship ought to engage the muscles of our heart that beat with thanksgiving every time we come together. You should not be thinking about what you need to get from God. Every time you come before God in worship, you should not be thinking what someone else is going to do for you. Every time you come before God in worship to the true and living God in worship, you should be thinking of giving thanks to him for all of who he is and all of what he's done for us. Psalm 69, 30 and 31, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. Psalm 100, enter his gates with what? Thanksgiving in his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Paul prays for the church in Colossians chapter 1 that she would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light because he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is what God has done for us. He follows that up in Colossians chapter 2. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And he says, be careful that you're not captive by the ways of the world, 
by the philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, not according to Christ. Be careful that you're not being influenced by the world, but that you're remembering God for who he is. You're thinking of God for who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made full, Paul says. If you get nothing else in this life, but you have Christ, you have everything, because God has filled you to the full with all of what he has. All of creation is heading to the day when the vision that John saw in Revelation 7 will be realized. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Does that describe your worship? Do you come to worship filled with thanksgiving for who God is? And all of what he's done for you in Christ. Coming before the Lord in worship with thanksgiving is pleasing to him because it is a clear declaration that you know who he is, that he is the mighty one, God, the Lord, who needs nothing from his creation, that you know all of what he's done for you and that your need for him and you know your need for him and that you're grateful to him for who he is. Back to Psalm 50. Again, he says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Again, God needs nothing. We need everything. We ought to be thankful for who he is, for what he's done. We ought to be thankful for the relationship we have with him, the fellowship that we have with him, with him who makes himself near in the day of trouble. We talked about that last week. The one who promises to deliver us from trouble. Not just our temporary momentary troubles, that we face daily, but ultimately he promises to deliver us from all evil. Any sacrifices we make, any act of worship ought to acknowledge these truths. It ought to be motivated by these truths. It ought to overflow with thanksgiving for these truths. Again, does that describe your worship as you come before the Lord? That is not glorified in us because we show up and go through the motions. He's glorified in us when we show up with our hearts full of thanksgiving for who he is and all of what he's done for us in Christ. This pleases him. This magnifies his greatness, his majesty, his glory. Well, again, the Lord rejects formalism and calls for fellowship. He also rejects hypocrisy and calls for humility. That's 16 through 23. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I've kept silent. You thought that I was like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart 
and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. But to the wicked, says the text. Remember, this is an indictment against God's people. He's calling his people to account for their worship. This is not a call to the nations in general. It's not a call to the unbelieving world, even though he uses such strong language. This is a call to the people of God to account for their work, worship. These are the wicked among the people of God. And that last accusation, God was addressing the weakness of their formal worship. Now he addresses the weakness of their moral worship. He's addressing the worship of their everyday lives. This is Romans 12 kind of worship. You remember what Paul says in Romans 12, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says, by the mercies of God, as you consider what God has done for you, all of what he says in Romans chapter 1 through 11, all of his mercies that have been poured out on us in Christ, as you consider those things, those things ought to motivate your life. You ought to live on the basis of what God has done for you, his mercy for you in Christ. Not conformed to the world, but transformed as you meditate on those things and you walk in light of those things. Back in our text, verse 16, what have you done? What right do you have to recite my statutes or take my covenant with your lips? He says, how can you even call yourselves believers? How can you say that you belong to me by covenant when your lives show no faithfulness to me? Verse 17, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. You hate discipline. That's clear clear because you cast my words behind you. My words should lead to a disciplined life. It should lead to an ordered life, a a life lived rightly before me. But that's not what I see when I look at your life. You take up my words on your lips. You say my words, but you do not obey my words. You take them up and cast them aside. That's hypocrisy. You're saying one thing and doing the other. He gives examples. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. Stealing in uh, in general is obviously against the law of God. It's one of the Ten Commandments right along with adultery, which is a different kind of stealing. The point is that they know this. They affirm these words with the covenant, the words of the covenant. They affirm the Ten Commandments are true and right. They go along with those who practice those things and they do them themselves. It's not just those big ticket items, so to speak, right? We tend to think of those big ticket kind of items, those big, you know, outright gaudy kind of sins, but they're also sins that are more easily acceptable. Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. We know that kind of person, right, who lets whatever comes come from their lips. They don't guard their tongues. They say whatever they think they want to say. And they're known as that kind of person who, quote unquote, speaks what's what's on their mind. They wear that as a merit badge, but it's not a merit badge in God's eyes. As James says, we bless God with the same mouth that we curse others made in the image of God, and that should not be so. Same for verse 20. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. We're using the words, the lips that God has given us for evil purposes. We come to him and we sing his praises and then we curse one another throughout the week. Verse 21, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself. 
He says, I've not been silent because I agreed with you. I've been silent because I'm trying to be patient with you. Peter talks about the patience of the Lord in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's times when you feel like God is not moving quickly to judge you, believer. The, the warning is there. The warning is present. It's not God's affirmation of what you're doing. It's his patience waiting for you to repent of your foolishness. God is willing, not willing, to leave us in our sin. He's not willing to leave us in our folly. He's patient and waiting for us to repent. But ultimately, he will move his hand in discipline. And he does that because of love. We're reminded of that in Hebrews chapter 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. The writer of Hebrews is making clear, if you go for a long period of time in sin, thinking that God is either affirming you or he's just not watching and so you can continue to get away with it. If you continue to go on and on in sin and you call yourself a believer, the reality is that you're probably fooling yourself because God disciplines those whom he loves. Time is up. In Psalm 50, verse 21, now I rebuke you and I lay this charge before you. His patience has gone on, but now time is up. Mark this, then you who forget God. Isn't that not the problem when we fall into sin as believers, that we forget God? We act as practical atheists. We forget that we belong to the Most High, the Mighty One, the Majestic God, the Lord, the preexistent, self-existent creator of all things the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we forget that that is true when we sin. Mark this, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Again, there's no condemnation for us in Christ, but the Lord will bring his chastening hand to bear against the believer who sins. He'll do this because he loves us and he's not willing to leave us in our sin. He desires for righteousness to be brought forth in our lives the Lord is committed to seeing us humble before his word as those who are humble before his word see its value its beauty its goodness they take his word upon their lips and they don't cast it aside but they walk in light of it with thanksgiving and praise Look at that next verse, verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. To offer thanksgiving as a sacrifice is to order our way rightly. It is to live rightly before God. It is to humble ourselves before his word, his way, to acknowledge with thanksgiving that his way is the right way. This verse is an offer to those who have fallen into sin. It's not too late. This is the promise of deliverance for those who repent, who turn away from their sin, who remember who God is, remember all of what he's done for us, and in turn, repent and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I wonder, do you live a life of thanksgiving before him? 
Do you seek to live in accord with his character? Do you consider his character, the goodness of his character, the goodness of his word? Do you consider those things daily and seek to walk in accord with his person, his character, his work? We've talked about the Psalms as songs. And in some songs, we've been able to identify a chorus or refrain where there's no single line that repeats in this psalm, but there's an idea that repeats in this psalm, and it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The idea of thanksgiving is repeated for emphasis. When you give thanks, you have to first consider the reason you have to be thankful. Yes? Well, what is God looking for in worship? What, will call, what is God looking for in our worship? What he's looking for in our worship is a heart filled with thanksgiving. It's a heart filled with thanksgiving that consciously considers his person, his character, his work. As we gather together in fellowship with one another and with him in our hearts, we consciously consider who he is, that he is the true and living God. He is the mighty one, God the Lord. We treasure him for who he is. And our consideration of who he is overflows into thanksgiving. Moreover, our praise in the fellowship works itself out in our everyday life. We don't just say one thing and do the other. In our everyday life, we continue with a heart filled with thanksgiving for who he is, and our life reflects that we're thankful for who he is. To the contrary, what causes him to reject our worship is when we come before him thinking of him in any way other than how he's presented himself in Scripture. He rejects our worship when we go through the motions without thinking of who he is. He rejects our worship when we say we love him, but we prove by our actions that we do not. Again, as I repeated throughout our study of the letter of Ephesians, we are the church, the people of God in our day. We exist for the glory of God. Yes, God cares deeply about our worship because the way we worship, the way we worship as we come together and the way we worship in our everyday life makes a difference in his glory shining forth through us. Let's pray together that our worship, both as we gather and as we scatter, would be pleasing to him, to the one who is the mighty one, the most high God, God the Lord. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for who you are and all of your greatness and all of your goodness. We praise you for who you are. We pray, Father, that as we gather together Sunday after Sunday, that we wouldn't gather together to just go through the motions or to say that we, get, we went to church on Sunday, but that we would gather together because our hearts are filled with gratitude for who you are, that we truly see you for who you are, that you are God, that you are our God by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ, that you are the Lord, that there is no other, and that you're worthy of our worship and our praise, and that we would, with thanksgiving, give praise and honor and glory to you. God, we pray as we scatter, as we go forth from this place that each and every day of the week would be filled with thoughts of who you are, with a consideration of your greatness, your glory, and that we would in worship live in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. Father, we pray that all those things would be true of us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.